0: Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest, I just want to talk about a few of the things I've been watching this past week. I watched the HBO Max documentary, No Eye and Threesome. So this is a really hard doc to talk about. Honestly, I don't think you can talk about it uh without spoiling it. So I will just say I was not sure where it was going and I was watching with my husband. We weren't really sure honestly we were gonna finish it. It was kind of like what is this? And then it's worth watching till the end. That's all I'll say. So we'll leave it at that. Um I did start watching the crime scene vanishing at the Cecil Hotel on Netflix and then I just got distracted, but I will probably go back to that. I know people are liking it online. I uh, finished Your Honor, the Showtime scripted series. The season finale was last night and it was good. I was a nail biter till the end. So I, I did enjoy it. It was a little bit of a slug, but I, I really got into it. Lastly, I, I watched something that you guys are not going to be able to watch quite yet for about another week, but I cannot wait for this series, Allen versus Farrow, which is about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. And everything about everything you know um dylan's abuse and uh the suny stuff it, it, it's it's unbelievable i i got early screeners because i'm hoping to be able to interview the filmmakers i really hope that happens if that doesn't happen i'm going to cover it in some way because it absolutely blew me away i will tell you now in advance um it's on hbo it's a four-parter it comes out on the 21st you must 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 watch this series I have a feeling it's going to be explosive and be, you know, even bigger than Britney in terms of the cultural conversation. So now on to my guest, Justin Lakup has the dream job of many people in our industry. He is the head of development for XTR. And they're a studio that helps filmmakers on their journeys to get their films made, whether that's financing or providing expertise and distribution. They do They do it all. They, Justin also co-founded Documentary Plus, which just launched. Um, it's sort of like the Netflix of documentaries. I just checked it out and intend to be using it. It's really, really great for people like us who love docs. Justin is a veteran producer. He got started on old school reality competition shows like America's Top Model. We talk all about that. And he has a funny little tidbit on Tyra Banks, so I'm sort of obsessed with it. He ended up on the network side at Spike, which later, of course, became Paramount and oversaw a gazillion episodes of Bar Rescue, their hit show that's still going now. And when Spike became Paramount, he was an executive producer with Jay-Z on the Emmy-nominated doc series Rest in Power, The Trayvon Martin Story. He was also an EP on Gone, The Forgotten Women, which was directed by Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Joe Berlinger, who incidentally directed the Cecil Hotel documentary. Hey, Justin. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So you are in Canada. Are we allowed to disclose your location or is it like you're in a bunker somewhere?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I'm currently in. uh, Yeah, currently in Vancouver, normally based in L.A., but currently in Vancouver, just writing out some of the quarantine.
0: Which is the best. I mean, I, I think you made the best call on that.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, like it, like the COVID levels here are so much lower than in Los Angeles. And really like my family and I could just be free frolicking in the woods. And it's been a lot of fun so far.
0: Very, very jealous. So I always start my podcast by saying how I know my guest. And I was actually racking my brain yesterday. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but you and I actually met a while back when you were at Spike. So before it was Paramount, I I think we met at we met at Real Screen for sure because I remember meeting with you but I also think we may have met at a par, at a Real Screen party that Spike Oxygen party. I remember I I'm a, I don't have the best memory but I'm pretty sure it was you that I met there and then I met with you, you know, like as an executive either that same Real Screen or a different Real Screen. That that's the best I got.
1: So Yeah, we'll be- I was trying to rack my brain on that <laughs> on that too and I think definitely it was the real screen and it possibly could be the spike oxygen or spoxy party, as we used to call it back in spoxy. the day. Spoxy.
0: Those were actually really fun. That was back like in the heyday of real screen.
1: That was like truly the heyday of real screen. And I feel like once those parties stopped, like it kind of went downhill.
0: It's true. Sorry. I feel like now every podcast I end up slogging on real screen. So I'm gonna stop. Apologies, real <laughs> screen, but bring back the spoxy party. <laughs> Although Spoxy, all right, so. So we'll go back, we'll go back to the beginning, but I actually want to start with where you are now and then kind of go backwards. Cause one of the reasons I want, wanted to talk to you for the pub was because I think that what you're doing and where you are is totally unique in our industry. It's really cool. I'm totally into it. And, you know, you and I have been talking about some projects that we can hopefully figure out a way to work together. Um, so tell us about XTR and kind of You know how it differentiates itself in the marketplace, and then what your job is because I think people will be really interested in this.
1: Yeah, so you know, XTR, we're the next generation of documentary studios that are out there. We started the company about a year and a half ago almost, it'll almost be two years that Bryn Muser and I, Bryn's the founder, and Bryn previously was the co founder of a company called Riot, um, which was acquired by Verizon Media, I think in like 2016, and he became sort of running. Not only Riot, but also running sort of the branded content verticals for Oath at the time, like HuffPo, TechCrunch, Yahoo, et cetera. Um, And when he left Riot, I left um, Paramount Network around the same time. And we had long tried to work together. And he kind of turned to me and said, Hey, do you want to try to build this together? Um, So we started the company, yeah, about a year and a half ago. And really what our aim is, is to just create amazing documentary content and really support filmmakers in their journeys um, to get the content made. So whatever that means, it could mean money, it could mean expertise, advice, relationships, festival strategy, sales strategy, distribution strategy. um, But that's sort of the founding guiding principles of XTR is really to support filmmakers on their journey to get their their films made.
0: And you have a couple different ways that you guys work. So you're in some, certain ways, like this sort of traditional studio where you're developing content, trying to sell it to networks, doing the game. But you also are able to fund some stuff. So give us kind of the overview of like the different strands, because if people, producers are listening and they want to figure out maybe where they would fit into the model, I think it would be helpful.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, like first and foremost, we have the traditional side and and just like other studios out there, you know, we develop internally or take on projects from outside producers or filmmakers, and then we'll package and pitch to the various platforms, or potentially even other independent financiers, depending upon if it's um, a series or a film. Um, And then we have our financing arm. And, you know, through, you know, that entity, we've been able to finance or co finance about 40 different documentaries to date. Um, we had five films last year that we helped support at Sundance, we had eight films this year. Um, we had films last year at South by Tribeca, Toronto, and this year we'll we expect to have also films at South by Tribeca and Toronto again. Um, and that's really a way for us to, you know, I, I, I think for us, part of the guiding principles also of XTR was like, you know, these documentaries take forever to make. I mean, certain films take, you know, for filmmakers could take 8, 9, 10 years Um, And often it's not the story that dictates it. It's a lack of access to cash um, and capital. And for us, if we can get filmmakers money quickly um, with less restrictive terms, um, you know, that's a really, I think, a win for us and a win for the filmmakers. Um, And that's a big part of, uh, you know, what we do at XTR. Um, we had the fortune of having a great partnership with the late, great Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos last year, who, you know, tragically passed away over Thanksgiving. And that really also allowed us and afforded us some some great runway to invest in some amazing um, feature docs, um, many of which were, you know, all of which were at, were at Sundance this past year.
0: Can you talk about, you know, one or two that were at Sundance that you're really psyched about or proud of and hopefully people get a chance to see?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're all really fantastic. You know, we had one film called At the Ready, which is um, was something that we worked on with Anonymous and, and some of this amazing filmmaker, Maisie Crow, And it really dealt with these students in Texas um, in a school where they were all, where the, the majority of the population is, is Latinx, and they were all in this particular program trained to become Border Patrol um, immigration agents, um, which I think is just a really interesting point of view in film and it's you know it's political but it is also is a, a great coming of age story for these kids that are you know in their senior year of high school trying to figure out their place in the world um and what happens to them in the film i don't want to spoil it but it's um it's very unexpected i think um for where where they end their journey at the end of the school year um so that's one of them that i was really proud of there's another film called rebel hearts um, directed by Pedro Koss, who was an editor on *The Great Hack* and is a really fantastic um, filmmaker. Um, and it's about the nuns in Los Angeles who essentially took on um, t- took on the Vatican um, when in the 60s when they felt like they wanted to do some reform and and really kind of shake loose a little bit of of I think the restrictions of of the cloth. Um, and it's just a really great retrospective story on 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 what these rebel nuns actually actually did. Um,
0: did the filmmaker have archival for that or was it mostly interviews with the nuns that are still around?
1: Yeah, it was everything. I mean, great archival. I mean, a lot of the nuns have since passed, um, but some, some of them were still alive. He followed them, some of them to the women's March a few years back. Um, and just the archival on that was, uh, is pretty incredible. Um, and that's, you know, two of our films. We also had this really great immersive film called users that won an award at, at, at Sundance. And it's kind of like this, this, poetic ode to this you know intersection of tech and humanity and what it means for us all and i think when the pandemic is over it's one of those films that i think will play really really well on the big screen
0: wow those sound like exciting big, yeah the I mean, big, the scope the big actual big screen right the, the An actual real, big screen. so is there you know those sound like it's like a great range is there a filter I mean, look, you know, it's interesting about art, right? Or anything that we do, it's all subjective. So somebody might respond to something that, and that happens all the time. Like, you know, I didn't like Wonder Woman. Um, so, you know, it's just like, it's right. Oh, good. Okay. There we go. I know. I say it quietly. I'm a Marvel guy. I say it quietly. Right. So I'm probably in neither. So that, that's, uh, you know, but I was excited for Wonder Woman, but that's a separate podcast. Anyway, so. Do you personally have a filter, like the films that you are most attracted to? Because you get so many, you know, people send you stuff all the time, obviously, and you have to make some decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think for us, it's about the stories and the storytellers and the passion behind the screen um, and the access that they have. But, you know, personally, I love things that are in, you know, music and sports and fashion and true crime. And, and you know, and, and also finding the ways where they can be about something bigger, whether it's about an issue or it's just trying to say something larger about society. You know, what are those projects that kind of, where there's that that great intersection? I'm also personally sucker for like, a truth is stranger than fiction story. You know, so something like Three Identical Strangers, you know, was one of my favorite docs over the last few years. It's like, what are those stories that are just dying to be told that, you know, truly you couldn't come up with the twists and turns of the plot? Um, Those are the ones that I really gravitate towards
0: same I could, i'm just like five different ones just came to mind and just ones that are just like are you kidding me yeah i love it especially when you don't know you know you haven't read about it like you go in completely cold that's that's yeah. i hate spoilers there was, doc,
1: there was a doc at sundance this year we didn't we weren't involved but it was called misha and the wolves and it was about this woman who um when she was seven she escaped the holocaust her parents were unfortunately killed and she ended up like wolves saved her, and she got back to society, came to America, and wrote this best selling book adapted into like multiple movies, languages around the world. Um, but as it turns out, the whole story didn't happen. And did she? <laughs> um, wow. So, I love know, it. And that's another one. It's like, who would have thought that, that that story could exist? And I think docs are just a great avenue to explore. They um, are.
0: Just, well, the <laughs> human condition, right? And like con artists. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to call her that, but they're just endlessly fascinating to me because I always think like, who has the time? Who has the
1: time? <laughs> right? 100%. And I think people just, especially now, are just in love with these kind of true con stories, whether it's something like McMillions or Tiger King, um, the uh, you know, the audiences are just eating them up. They are.
0: So... Another thing that you guys have done, which just launched, is Documentary Plus, which is also really exciting. So talk a little bit about that um, and how we can find out more about it also.
1: Yeah, so we launched Documentary Plus just a few weeks ago. It's an ad-supported platform, really available anywhere you download and watch content. So we're on connected televisions, we're on iOS, Android, on the web, on Apple TV, Roku, etc. And what we're trying to really build is a brand um, within the documentary community and a place for nonfiction fans and lovers um, to consume content. So we've been curating um, an amazing selection of films over the last few months, Um, Everything from award winners, um, festival favorites, um, films by up and coming filmmakers, um, you know, and really diverse films that are, you know, some maybe more comedic leaning, some that are more music leaning, some that are social justice, political, historical, um, you name it, we're trying to build a platform where there's something for everyone to watch. Um, Shorts, features, and I think eventually we'll probably do some series as well.
0: I didn't realize oh it's on Roku, that's great because I'm a Roku
1: girl. So I will be downloading immediately.
0: So you do so many docs, that's like your life. Um, do you watch any scripted? I'm just curious, like if there's if you if
1: you like oh, it. A hundred percent. I mean, it's funny. I'm one of those execs and producers who doesn't really like reality. I <laughs> well, have you don't like say my- that word anymore. Of course. I have my core shows. Like I love like Survivor. Like I've never missed an episode, Um, but I'm mostly a doc and scripted watcher. I've always, I've just always been that way. Um, So recently, you know, I've been watching things like Flight Attendant on HBO Max. I thought was just super fun. Um, Didn't take itself too, didn't take itself too seriously. So I love that. Um, I really loved, um, you know, I still watch Shameless. So I'm watching the last season of, of Shameless right now. I'm just curious how after, you know, 12 seasons or 11 seasons, that, that story will end. Um, you know, I, 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 as I said, I love Marvel. So like WandaVision, I'm watching The Servant on, on Apple. Um, yeah, pretty like a widespread of like scripted stuff. I watch it. Yeah, I watch a ton of feature movies, docs. And yeah,
0: scripted. Uh, there's so much good content. I have a list a mile long of things I still need to see that I really want to see, but I haven't finished the last series I'm watching. You know, it's like it's overwhelming
1: it's, it's so overwhelming when there's like, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of content in all these platforms. It's like just hard to choose. Um, But in Queens gambit, I mean, that was an amazing. So well done.
0: So well done. I loved it. So I want to go back a little bit um, to the beginning. So you've been in this business a while. Is there, how did you start and like what attracted you to even going into television in the first place?
1: Yeah. I was like one of those kids growing up. It's kind of going to sound really nerdy, but like I would, every Sunday I would like go to the computer and see the box office results of like what movies made what.
0: <laughs> and, like, I love it.
1: And I loved it. And I still, by the way, it's still something that I still do in normal times, not in the, in the pandemic um, when there's no theatrical, but like it's something I just kind of geek out on and I love that. And so growing up, I always knew I wanted to get into the entertainment industry. I just, you know, being from New York, I didn't necessarily have um, any connections in that universe so in college, I actually interned for Bloomberg News in New York. Um, and it was like the craziest internship of all time because literally it wasn't really an internship. It, I was basically a reporter. I would, scaffolding would collapse in New York. I'd race to the scene with a tape recorder and like get people's reaction. Hillary Clinton, Senate campaign, race to her press conference and angle my way for, to interview, you know, to get a bite or two of her, um, you know, with a, with a, a couple interview questions. So this was amazing training ground. It was like I was covering local news, entertainment, um, politics and financial news. So it was like interviewing analysts on the on like financial stuff. Uh, it was interviewing people like the Fairley Brothers when they were doing something about Mary, which was like, this is amazing thing. And they made fun of my hair, which was awesome. Had <laughs> Perfect. Gel, had a lot of hair gel in it. Oh, my God. Um, that's funny. And it was just this amazing kind of training ground for me that I think it kind of set me up with a lot of the kind of producing chops that I had later in my career. Um, but it was my first taste of sort of like, quote unquote, the entertainment industry, even though it was on the news side. Um, and then when I graduated from college, it news seemed like the place to go based on my experience. So I like hustled my way trying to get all these different jobs, you know, it was heartbroken. I didn't get 2020, you know, was I, I was offered this job at, at ABC on a, on this like World News Tonight, I think it was called, which was on at like 2 a.m. And I was like, as a 22 year old, I just couldn't imagine working on an overnight shift. So I turned it down, but as luck would have it, I ended up at CBS News and I did this amazing program there where they placed you in one of the units and I got placed in the documentary unit, CBS News Productions. um, And I ended up working on an episode of biography on Peter Boyle. Um, And that was just an amazing experience. Who ran that unit? it was guy Brett Alexander um ran, ran the unit. And I worked for this amazing producer, Kath Newcomb. No idea where she is now, but she was an incredible boss um, and really gave me the leeway to kind of basically make that episode my own, which was pretty cool.
0: Is that where you started to get the bug for like longer form and doc?
1: Yeah, it was definitely where I got that bug for that. I loved working on that. And then I also, at the same time, because I was 22 years old, wanted to work at MCV. And I was like, I kept applying there. I kept applying there. And eventually I got the call. And I had actually left CBS. and was working in promos at USA Network very briefly. And I quit that job to go to MCV, where I worked on the first couple seasons of Made. Um, with, best um, show, best with the, show, the, yeah,
0: the best show. That show, I talk, I still talk about that show. um Was that Surreal Next Group? Was that Lily
1: um, and Dave? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was Surreal Next Group. Um, and you know, Angie Day was there. That she created that show. Yeah, and, right. You know, it, it was. Um, it was really cool. And you know, so many of those episodes, I think, could have been like doc series, but at the time, obviously, it was just an episodic.
0: A hundred percent. That's a reboot. They should, t- I mean, I don't think it's for MTV necessarily. Cause I don't know if the kids would want to watch it, but I would watch that now today.
1: I think they'd all want to be made into YouTube stars though. Yeah, MTV.
0: exactly. I think that documentary was just made. Did you watch fake famous on HBO? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was rough. That was rough. Um, <laughs> how did you get, so you did like a long stint on top model, which, you know, back when was one of my favorite shows. In fact, I just quoted it to my daughter this morning I said, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you, which is like one of Tyra's famous rants, which I don't know if you were there for that.
1: Season four. Was it season? Were you there? Season four with Tiffany.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was there. I love that line holds up. So how did you like that's kind of a dream job, right? I mean, I would think that would have been really exciting.
1: Yeah, it was it was a great job. I think I did six or seven seasons or cycles. I still don't actually know why we called it cycles after all these years. Um, but I did um, season four through season nine, and then I consulted on 10. Um, but it was a really amazing job. I had other jobs in between, you know, the MTV days in New York and then moving to Los Angeles. Um, but I think Top Model was like the first time I really got the taste of more of the reality kind of format side. Um, I also, you know, during college was when Survivor came out. And that was, you know, definitely inspiration for trying to get over to the sort of what, you know, wasn't really even called the reality industry back then. Um, but having gotten the opportunity to work on sort of like one of the grandfather shows of reality with Top Model was just like, was, was a pretty amazing. Um, and I think if you look at sort of the crew of producers that were there at the time, like everyone's gone on to such just amazing things. You know, Sean Rankin was actually gave me my, my shot on that show and he's, you know, obviously just an incredible showrunner and creator, you know, uh, Derek Wan now at Netflix. Maggie Zeltner at HGTV, um, Aaron Sampson, who's done on some amazing stuff, Anthony, Anthony Dominici, Daniel Soyssef, like the list just goes on and on of just amazing um, producers who, you know, use that show as, a, as just a way of, of learning and, and moving, moving ahead in the ranks.
0: Yeah, it had it all. All right, tell us one thing about Tyra that would surprise us. And I may have asked Sean Rankin the same question. <laughs> I can't remember.
1: Ooh, that is a great question. Might have to come back to you on that one. Okay. Yeah. What, of, of what's good to talk about. Right.
0: <laughs> I'm saying because you got to censor yourself. I'm sure. Um,
1: yeah. She. Look. The, the honest truth. of Like she actually was fantastic to work with on that show. I mean, like we worked on so many seasons together, um, traveling all over the world, and it was really cool to um, to to um, to do that with her. So it was pretty awesome.
0: I mean, she's she's like one of the original boss queens. You know, I mean, she was sort of like running her little empire before that was like the thing.
1: A hundred percent. I will say her rider was quite strange and the things that we would have to have on set. Okay. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Very specific, like sodas and things. And I I will say that when we would go abroad to, you know, wherever countries were shooting in, like we were in China, Australia, Spain, we actually had to ship all of the food from the States because the brands weren't available in like those local countries. And I remember in China, everything got held up in customs and like and it was, it was like a really big deal. But then you said like, we couldn't get you your the soda. She was like, oh yeah, I don't really care. Oh um, God,
0: after you got there, like all of that.
1: What was her yeah. soda? What was like her specific brand? I don't even remember, but it was kind of like Fresca, but it wasn't Fresca. But it was something like, it was just, or maybe it was like the Diet Orange Hansen soda. It was just something like, that was just good but strange that we would have to get all the stuff shipped in and like you know in a lot of these countries they don't want american food coming in via like boxes being shipped so it was always like the stressful thing of like when we were about to shoot the um like the elimination days and like we didn't have like all that stuff there but
0: right <laughs> i love wasn't it wasn't really my job it wasn't that's really good. my job either that's but. good that's fun so wait so i lost like the new york la thing so at what point did you make the move from new york and are you from long island can we talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I'm
1: from, yeah, I'm from Jericho. Okay, congrats yeah, which, on
0: losing the accent. Nicely done. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Jericho is in another whole story of itself. But um, Really? <laughs> um, but yeah, um, yeah, so I worked for MTV, and then I worked for a show called VH1 Goes Inside, actually doing a behind-the-scenes of, of Survivor, um, which was, again, like, that just keeps, you know, that's, again, one of my favorite shows. Um, and Corey Nelson was the kind of showrunner of that show, and she ended up moving to Los Angeles, to become the showrunner, take over the showrunner duties of the Sharon Osborne show. And before she left, she said, do you want to move to LA? And I said, under no circumstances do I want to go to Los Angeles. I was like happy in the city, had a great apartment in House Kitchen, didn't want to move. She leaves. And then like three weeks later, I get a call from Telepix saying, hey, I heard you want to move to Los Angeles. Like, we'll basically pay for you to come out. So, you know, at 20, I guess I was like 23 years old. I figured, hey, why not? It's worth the shot. So, you know, I, I kind of just packed up my stuff, moved out to Los Angeles and I was like, I'll give LA a year. Um, and you know, now it's been, I don't know, 16, 17 years, something like that. Um, so funny. It's such a New Yorker. I mean,
0: I used to come out here all the time too for work, but yeah. When people would say, would you ever move? I was like, no, like New York. I mean, when you're raised, you know, I was raised in Westchester. So right outside New York, also the city, it's like, that's the end all be all right. Like that's your like LA is fun to visit. It's fun to work in, but like you can't imagine not living it for me. I couldn't even imagine. Like, I was going to raise my kids in the city. Like that was like the end, you know, that was the goal.
1: Totally. I think my first two years in LA, I just like so desperately missed like the electricity of in the air of New York Yeah. and like, and the bagels, just, the bagels, the bars, like, the smell, the people, like even the subway. Like, yeah, yeah
0: pizza, like, <laughs> I mean, it's just the food, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was so hard to, and and actually having to like drive places, like that was just like a rude away and like bars closing at like midnight. Like, it was just all just a rude awakening coming to Los Angeles. But, you know, but hey, LA was great. So that job. So then I ended up working for Sharon Os- on the Sharon Osborne show as, as a producer. Um, and, you know, that was interesting because when we, I showed up but they hadn't fired all the people that they were replacing. Cause like a couple of us came from that, from corn show in New York and they hadn't been notified yet that like we were replacing those people. So it was like, nowhere, no desk for us to sit. It was super awkward. And then by the end of the week, like they all got fired and we started. Um, but that was also actually a really fun show to work on as well. Um, Sharon, another sort of just like awesome boss and um, you know, lots of interesting stories from that too.
0: I'm sure. And again, like an original, I mean, she was, she was managing Ozzy's career right from the beginning. I mean, she was sort of like getting things done before it was popular for women to be getting things done like that.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. She was in, you know, look, and she at that time was also filming the Osbournes, you know, another show that she put together. Um, And she was just, you know, busy all the time, but like, it was pretty inspiring just the, you know, just, just her whole career and even, and since then as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, completely. She's, she's amazing. And, yeah, I was gonna say something not PC. Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> about her appearance, which is she's she looks great. That's all I was gonna say. She looks great.
1: Yeah, I ended up working with her again years later on uh, when I was at Fremantle, which I uh, will get to probably in a second. But yeah. um, I ended up developing out a variety show with her and the family that aired on Fox. Um, yeah, it was called Osborne's Reloaded. It was a it was a serious. Uh, probably one of the most bizarre things I ever worked on. It was a variety show kind of inspired by like the success of so many of those like UK variety shows, like Ant and Deck and all those shows. And we kind of, you know, borrowed a lot of things from those formats and we free man alone to a lot of those shows too. Um, and we had a huge bidding war, all the, all the, um, Everyone bid on it. John Farriter came, the late, great John Fetter came and all those pitches. And we had a huge bidding war on that, on that series. And we ended up with Fox with Darnell and we aired one episode. It was up against the biggest loser dancing with the stars. I think maybe even survivor at the time it had 12 million viewers and it was considered a colossal failure. And I think only one episode actually aired, but it was this again, bizarre variety show with the whole Osborne family doing like skits and tape pieces. I like went to North Dakota with them and we did this piece called "Oswords Meet the Osborne's, where they lived, quotations, with a family in North Dakota that was like working at the grain mill factory. So like the guys, like Jack and Ozzy did the job with them for the day and, and then Kelly and Sharon, I forget what they did. It was um, a sim- with
0: the them. simple life basically.
1: Yeah, it was kind of like the simple life. It was like, and then they had like younger, we did like a whole thing with like, we had like kid versions of the Osborne's like just saying profane things. Like it was just, it was a kind of really pretty bizarre show, but it was again, fun to collaborate with her again.
0: Did you ever meet Amy Osborne, the missing Osborne? She's
1: never, it's
0: so weird. Like I wonder, what, where is she? I think there'd be a
1: great doc about
0: that. (laughs) Right. Where is like searching for Amy Osborne? Okay. Yeah. It's out there. Whoever wants to bring it to Justin, he'll do it. It's just so interesting how she really kept out of it you
1: know, I mean, kudos for her, you know, she didn't want, she wasn't interested in the public eye and she escaped it.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So Fremantle. So how did you end up there?
1: Yeah. So when I worked on top model, I often for, you know, I was there for so long and I ended up kind of hitting it off with one of the execs at originally UPM, later CW, Larry Barron, um, and Larry really believed in me and always like we always whenever we come on set, we would hang out, chat about just the the shows like we would obviously talk about the creative. But we, you know, while I was working on Top Model, I think like in the later seasons, he left to go to Fremantle. Um, so when I was in season between season nine and 10, he basically said, hey, I'm looking for a director of development. You know, do you want to I, I know you're interested in working in development. And I said, absolutely. Like, hell, yes. Like, let's let's do it. Um, I think for me, it's like I love production. I still like production. I think for me, I was getting a little bit burnout on on the long hours, especially on something like Top Model, where we're just, you know, on on set working on that show for ten months out of the year. Um, and to kind of go into development was just a dream for me. It was something that I always wanted to do. And and Larry really just gave me that that huge opportunity and the chance. Um, yeah. Yeah. He yeah he unfortunately passed away pretty tragically and suddenly over Christmas. Um, which is kind of, I think quite quite a blow to myself. You know he's just been a, a great mentor and a friend for me over the years and um, has really, really actually helped me with, with my career as well. I mean not only at Fremantle, but you know he recommended me for my next job at Intuitive Entertainment. Um, and when I was looking to make the jump from intuitive to the network side. He's, he 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 sent my resume over to Tim Duffy and Sharon Levy, who then hired me at Spike. So, you know, I really credit a lot of my career to Larry, again, a, a great friend and a great mentor. And it's been a pretty shock, I think, to myself and, the, and and his friends and and in the industry that, you know, he passed in over Christmas. But um,
0: yeah, he sounded like a great, I, I didn't know him, but he sounded, you know, and anybody who can, who can give you, you know, that guidance and that help. I mean, you just had, It's so fortunate to be able to find someone like that. But so you did make the perfect uh, transition to where I wanted to go. What made you want to make the leap from the production to the network side? Was it sort of getting that development bug and realizing, you know, it'd be interesting, or was it just I want some healthcare?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, uh, you know, Free Mental had healthcare, which was great. Intuitive, it did not. But, but, um, but I think for me it was. I really just wanted to advance my career further and really diversify my resume. And I think, again, I always had this plan, you know, even from when I was analyzing box office numbers, I wanted to be more in, I think the business of entertainment. Um, And I felt that the leap to the network side, I think could really get me there. Um, And, um, and I hadn't had that experience to, you know, foster and shepherd a show, like that from that side. Um, Yeah, I was, you know, pitching shows and producing them when they were when we were making them, but I couldn't really control the destiny of these shows, especially after, you know, we would do a season of a show and it get canceled. And I'd be like, well, I didn't, you know, I had no say in the marketing campaign or, you know, how the show was promoted or, you know, and I think that was what I was also craving on the network side to really be able to control the destiny of, um, of these shows, you know, really from ideation to, you know to air and everything in between.
0: So were you at Spike when Grant Penvitic and the team came in with Bar Rescue or did that precede I, you?
1: That just preceded me. So they had shot the pilot, I you know, I think maybe a month or two earlier. Um I you know and and then when I got there Tim handed me the series in season 1 um and said like hey run run with this, which was amazing because you know it's a show that's still on after all these years. Um, I oversaw, I think over 150 episodes plus like four spinoffs with Taffer. Um, so it was awesome. Yeah. It was a really great show to get my, you know, to, to dig my, my teeth into.
0: What's John Taffer like IRL as the kids say. (laughs)
1: Um, yeah, look, I mean, John, I think is, he has a TV personality. You know, I think he, some of that bleeds over to real life. Um, and maybe that's all I'll say uh, <laughs>
0: enough as a enough or enough said. Okay. No, I
1: mean, look, I, I love, I love John. I've got to, I get along with him really well. Um, but I think, yeah, that's probably all I'll say.
0: <laughs> so you stayed at Spike and then, you know, through the rebranding to Paramount. So that was how many years total was the whole experience it was a while.
1: Yeah, I think it was about eight years, maybe like a tad under or a tad over around there. Yeah, so I kind of was, was there for many regimes, many shifts on programming tastes. You know, when I came into Spike, it was it, they were just trying to get out of the young male demo. And, you know, things like Bar Rescue, I think, really helped elevate the network, um, get a, you know, a wider demographic, attract some women to it. And then I also worked in scripted with Sharon there and then also sort of brought the docs to Spike, and to Paramount as well. So I got to see from the eight years I was there, shifts in brand, shift in logo, shift in, you know, demographic, shift in network. So um, it was a pretty great experience.
0: And one of the shows that you worked on, um, once it became Paramount, became a really big, you know, lauded, critically acclaimed series, The Trayvon Martin Story. Um, I would love to hear, uh, I think Chachi talked a little bit about it on our podcast. So, yeah, what was your, like, were you there when it came in, like with Jay-Z? How did the, all of that happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at, at Spike, we had just done Time the Clear Browder story, you know, you know, which Warner Peabody got a lot of attention, actually caused and incited some real change in New York with the planned closure of, of Riker's. And you know, and looking for the follow up for that, you know, we approached basically the same team who had just gotten the rights to um his parents' book, um, you know, Jenner Jenner and Julia First. We had Rock Nation. we sort of had the same team to kind of put the band back together, so to speak. um and just, and it really just made sense as an amazing follow up um to the Cleef Browder story to tell another story um that was about someone else that is is equally as important and has played just a tremendous role in you know the fight for equality and social justice um so even though that was an amazing experience i mean i went down to to miami at some point and, and participated in um that sort of like trayvon's birthday rally as we marched through the neighborhood and it was really just a, a pretty astounding sight and just a special sight to see the community rallying together you know in in his honor of his of his birthday um, And you know as a series you know, so compelling, so well done, you know, again, the filmmakers just you know kicked it out of the park. Um, you know, I think what made that show difficult is that it was a difficult watch, I think for people. Um, and I think you know those are sort of the stories that you know the social justice stories tend to be stories that I think are are hard watches, because we have to take a look at ourselves as society in society. Um, and I would have liked to have seen that 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 series perform more, and I feel like it's one of those series that'll have a really strong afterlife on other platforms.
0: I agree with you, it's so much about timing. You know, if that series came out this year, I just feel like it would be a completely different story. You know, and and especially yeah, with even 100%. more more hindsight and in the moment with this past, you know, with Black Lives Matters this year and everything. Um, you know, it's obviously such a home run when you can make really good content that also like you said has social importance and relevance and, and, and like you'll have that on your resume forever, which is, I mean, in addition to all the really good stuff you're doing now, but it's just, it's, it's very cool. So I, oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, I was going to say, I think that's also just the power of the doc medium right now is like, you know, I think one of the reasons people love it in, in addition to being entertained and informed, like when it can actually move culture, I think that's just, just a special sweet spot. And you don't really see, a lot of scripted content moving culture. I think some hundred A
0: hundred percent. I mean, just to be super timely about it, and you and I have had, you know, off-camera conversations about um, Free Britney. You know, that's been around now for a while, and it's been like, oh, I kind of know about it. It's a little bit fringy. You know, and even some New York Times picked it up, Vanity Fair, and it still just didn't create a groundswell. And all of a sudden, this doc drops on Hulu, and everybody watches it celebrities start tweeting out free britney and that's because of that doc like nothing else moved the needle um to get people to really understand what's going on so yeah it's a perfect example of how it really just needs the power that it can have the media can have i mean in in that you know and telling stories that way is just so cool i love it
1: yeah like i, I would kind of dub it like the blackfish effect like you know after that movie came out I mean, you know, so many businesses and celebrities terminated their relationship with SeaWorld. And, you know, that really had like a negative, um, you know, a negative on that business. And I think like there's tons of other docs out there, whether again, yeah, it's, you know, whether it's Britney Spears or, you know, or something else or Trayvon Martin, like when it can incite change, you know, that's just a special place. And I think the audiences just love that. Um, because they get to feel like they played a real role in like changing society.
0: I think I asked this question to um, Courtney Sexton over at CNN. And it's kind of, it's it applies to you too, because you're able to, to kind of do what she's doing. Do you have a white whale or like something that you're dying to do a doc on or a doc series on? that it's like, if I could just get the rights or I can just get the access, like something that you're chasing?
1: Um, Not that I can probably admit on this. Podcast, um, but like, but like, Mick Millions was one that I would have loved to have done. Like, I remember when the articles all broke, um, and I, when I, I think I was still on the network side, and I was like, that is going to be a killer doc or a killer series. And you know, kudos to you know, Unrealistic and HBO for you know for getting that off the ground. And that was a great series last year. Um, but that's one I would have loved to have done. As far as like, what are the White Whales, like? Probably can't admit it on this podcast.
0: <laughs> exactly, that's, the, that's podcast. the right answer. That's the right answer. Um, and lastly, you know, you mentioned scripted, which I know you did some um, when you were at Spike. Is like, what's the biggest other than the obvious, which is scripted versus you know versus Docker non-scripted? Um, what's the biggest difference in terms of the world? Because so few people in our industry have gotten to do both. You know, that's one of it's on my bucket list is to, is to hopefully adapt some of the stuff I'm doing to scripted. But I feel pretty much in the dark about like how it all works other than, you know, it seems like it takes a full day to get a scene done and, you know, we can do like five scenes in a day or whatever. So for you, like what was the biggest difference, good or bad, in terms of um, dipping your toe in that world and getting some really, you know, inside access to it?
1: Yeah, I think the stakes are just bigger. I mean, it's bigger budgets, bigger money, more on the line for, you know, for the success or the failures of those of those projects. Um, And I think that was, you know, in a lot of ways, when you think it's just content, just content, you know, on, on Netflix, like, you know, Queen's Gambit is next to, you know, My Octopus Teacher. So for the consumers, it feels like it's the same. But just the money involved is just so much bigger. And I think the pressure is just there to deliver hits a little bit more. Um, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to you know to work with Sharon Levy at Spike and scripted and really kind of create that department from scratch. And you know, we did a, a huge budget um, project called Tut um, with Sir Ben Kingsley, where we you know we basically built a, a set of Egypt in the Moroccan desert, um, which was pretty amazing to um, to be a part of. Um, but it's just the stakes. The stakes are bigger, and the people or the personalities are bigger. So, you know, coming into the rooms were just, you know, massive personalities or writers or directors with big egos, um, you know, and, and I think those are also just challenges to navigate of just the r- relationships. But like, hey, the nonfiction side also has those <laughs>
0: personalities. You worked with John Taffer.
1: <laughs> yeah, e- exactly. Or, you know, and behind the scenes too. So, you know, and I, and I think the lines really now have blurred a lot more, especially, on on the doc side with scripted. I mean, not only because like both genres are essentially borrowing elements from each other. So you have things like American Animals, um, that really blends that blends both. Um, but I also think like doc is taking a lot of great devices from scripted, not just recreations, but like just really heightened visuals and like nonlinear storytelling. And I think script is taking a lot of interesting, more you know, verite driven scenes from doc. Um, and for the consumers, again, it's like they don't really care anymore you know docs used to be you know film strips in classrooms and now docs are blockbusters i mean i think i coined it i did a thought piece um last year for medium and for real street magazine and called it the, the rise of the Docbuster." um you know docs are here to stay and they're a little a real business now and i think for consumers they just want great stories and great storytelling and they don't really care if it's queen's gambit or if it's um you know social dilemma as long as they're challenged and watching something really cool and interesting to themselves,
0: I love that. I'm going to post that um, that link in our in the show notes so people can check that out because I need to read that too. Um, this is great. I I really am you know so interested in in what you're up to and I think you've had a really interesting career. When you and I spoke yesterday um, or the other day, we were catching up. Um, you know, we were talking about news as the foundation. Of a career, that's where I start. I started in. Uh, I wanted to start in New York, but I ended up in Bangor, Maine. <laughs> so that didn't quite work out. But, but the preparation, you know, that kind of um, quick deadlines, like you said, being able to kind of do everything because really just mostly lack of resources or, you know, like people are just so busy. They don't have time to be like, no, Justin, you can just do this. You know, you got to like do it all at such a young age. I think that preparation is just invaluable for like, it really set the the path for your career.
1: Well, yeah, 100%. I think I, I'm, I'm not really sure where I would be if I didn't have that as a foundation. You know, I never, got, I never had to be an assistant, which was pretty awesome because I had that foundation. And I think I probably would have done that route and maybe gone the agency route or something like that. Um, Which I'm glad I I didn't have to.
0: (laughs) I feel the same way. I mean, and that's the thing now. I mean, there is no linear path because a lot of sort of like, you know, younger people who listen sometimes, you know, they'll hit me up to get advice or whatever. And it's I, I feel like a dinosaur in that sense of giving advice, because it's like there is the path to you know, show running or directing or producing, it's just so different today than it was. Like the options are limitless. You don't need to even start in an agency now. I mean, unless you want to be an agent, you know, but like so many people I interview that are producers now started an agency, you know, which was great experience back then. I still think it's good experience, but you definitely don't need to do that.
1: No, I think like the fact that also you can shoot projects on your iPhone, I think also just has like, completely changed the living, you know, the playing field on like where you can start your career. You know, I think now that you could just create, you don't have to necessarily be in the system to create. It's just really changed up, um, you know, how people get into the industry, which I think is also awesome. I mean, it's reset the table um, and and allowed so many people from many different walks of life, the opportunity to, to kind of break in
0: hundred percent. It's so true. Well, thank you, Justin. I really appreciate this chat. Um, do you, do you have social media? Is any of your social media public or do you want to promote? Yeah. Anything? Yeah.
1: My Instagram is public, um, which is Rocco tour. Why? It was my Instagram. It was my, my aim screen name. Back oh in my
0: God. Now you're dating and, yourself.
1: Yeah. It's just like one of my, my online aliases and I just took it as my Instagram handle. Okay. More of an Instagram.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So everybody can check Justin out there. And like I said, I'll I'll post the uh, think piece in the show notes and the link to XDR so people can look at the projects that you guys are up to.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and for, uh, for asking me to do this. I've always been like, I was always jealous of everyone that got asked to do all these podcasts like yours. And I was like, finally, someone asked me to do it
0: you've you've entered as i joke with um jason Sarlanis because he's been on a few times he's going to get like the snl robe so now you're in the nether you're in the queue if, if we have you back awesome thank you so
1: much i appreciate it
0: thank you